0: Welcome to the Sum of It All Unlearning podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're diving into the book Unlearning Changing Your Beliefs and Your Classroom with UDL by Allison Posey and Katie Novak. Transcripts to our podcasts are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're diving into the final chapter, Chapter Six Take Action.
1: All right. Well, Audrey, let's let's just just dive in Uh, the chapter. Chapter six starts with uh, the heading of understand variability. Mm -hmm. And uh, Audrey, this is a favorite topic of ours, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Student variability. um, Such a game changer for me. And, you know, Audrey, it all started when I saw that TED talk myth of average by Todd Rose. That's that's what set me down this road for sure. And uh, that's where I was introduced to the notion of a jagged profile to consider really anyone's variability, but specifically students' variability. Um, and if you recall, there's uh, there's a slide I can picture in my head <laughs> where you have a student and you have um, these different descriptors down the left side of the screen. And then this idea of a continuum from high to low uh, up at the top of the screen and and the idea is to think about like our students have such variability in many different areas, not like in in a single area. And and to this to the point of that, Audrey, you know, I'm thinking about oh, and by the way, our authors uh share a couple um illustrations of a jagged, a couple of students with a jagged profile. And you know, the thing I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh over the last couple of years is what does that jagged profile look like for mathematics? Mm-hmm. In other words, what would those descriptors look like? Um, the other thing I think a lot about is in, in Todd's te- TED Talk, um, we have the, these these uh, indicators of high and low. And uh, you know the, the one thing that sort of like made me wonder about that a little bit too is when people see that, do they think that those descriptors, even by considering variability are, are somewhat permanent? Mm -hmm. or are they malleable? Um, And again, thinking about that in terms of mathematics. And so what language might we use when we think about variability to imply that the terms are not implying a a degree of permanence and that they're still malleable? And so I, I think when I see high and low, it sort of like triggers kind of that labeling thing versus the idea that it might be where you are as a person right now in that particular descriptor.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Mark. I, you know, the authors mentioned at the beginning they do use high and low in their um, in their examples to, in terms of their jagged profiles, but they do say the students' jagged learning profiles can shift based on the context. They can shift over time. Like they're malleable and they're meant to be malleable. So if that language is not malleable to you, you know, to you particularly, Mark, or to you, our listener, like I think it's really important to think about what other words could be used there at the top to describe kind of that space and maybe it's even um as much as putting like just an arrow um i know that when we talked Ooh. about about building, building thinking classrooms right um, back in some of the formative assessment work they took off all the labels and they just put kind of the label of like ah. you know a starting a point for an arrow right and then they drew it to the right and they had the the head of the arrow going you know off in the distance and so implying growth right um versus like you know starting places anyways something to think about but definitely I am resonating with that point around it being malleable and shifting over time.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Audrey. And you know, the other thing I was thinking about in terms of the left side, like what those descriptors might be, I was thinking a lot about uh, Tracy Zager's book, becoming the math becoming becoming the math teacher you wish you'd had, uh, which is a fantastic que- uh, fantastic title of a book for sure. And um, and I'm thinking about her chapter titles. Uh, and if if our listeners haven't seen that book before, let me just uh, throw out some of her chapter titles that are really descriptions of what a mathematician might do, um, including taking risk, make mistakes, they're precise, they rise to a challenge, ask questions, connect ideas, use intuition, reason, prove, work together and alone. And so, Audrey, I think about like how those could be the variability of our students as they engage in mathematics. They all have variability in this current moment um, around all those different descriptors. And so just just something I've thought about and um, might be interesting for our listeners to consider.
0: Yeah. So along with that, there's activities at each of the um, sections in this chapter have an activity after them. And I really appreciated this activity number one, um, which might be interesting to try with students. And And they said that for any lesson, um, identify some of the core skills and learning practices that are required, like you were saying, um, have them reflect on where they're at, where their challenges lie. That's all the same thing that you were just describing, uh, whether they're Tracy Zager's, you know, descriptions of being a mathematician or something else. Um, But then they continue in this other line, I think is super cool. They say, brainstorm together how their challenges might be overcome by options in the environment. Mm. I think that could be a huge, like, game changer if you um, empower students to say, folks, like these, these are not like sentences. These are not like you are stuck here. But now knowing that this is a challenge for you, what are the things you're going to take advantage of in the situation that we're in? Do you need to take advantage of working alone? Do you need to take advantage of finding a group member? Do you need to take advantage of where you sit, whether or not you're listening to music, whether or not you try doing this exercise out loud as opposed to on paper, all of the things that, um, that might occur that are available to you in the environment that you could look for for opportunity. And I, I appreciated that um, both as a, an activity for students to do and a collaborative activity to do with students and teachers so that you can learn about your students in that moment and what, um, what might be helpful for them in overcoming some of their challenges um, in a particular moment in time.
1: Yeah, uh, Audrey, I just really think that could work really nice with Tracy Zager's descriptors. You know, like those could be. I could have goals. I could set my own goals, uh, as we do in universal design for learning, where I could, I could consider that there's one of those descriptors I really want to get better at. Maybe I'm working with my other fellow students around that, and I, I really like the idea of kids really owning that that thing that they want to get better at, and so forth. So that yeah. I think I think that sounds great. Awesome. Um, well, that you know, there's another. Uh, uh, heading here as we get into the chapter, and it's called Own the Guidelines. Um, did you have any thoughts around that particular section, Audrey?
0: Yeah, you know what was interesting, Mark, is that you know they talk about how overwhelming variability can be um, when you think about all of your students and all yeah. the variability, yeah, right? Like, yeah. I think that's the first thing we usually hear from teachers when we start yeah. talking about variability is like, wait a second, like if you wrote down 10 chapter titles of mathematicians and you know 30 kids in the room that's a lot to keep track of what are we planning for um (laughs) and so the authors talk about like coming back and using the guidelines as like these nine dimensions of learner variability to help make sense of a variability in general and you know what it reminded me of it reminded me of um when we read zaretta hammond's
1: Mm.
0: um oh man i'm gonna blank on the title now um culturally relevant
1: Culturally, culturally responsive, responsive teaching in the brain. Yeah, Thank
0: yeah, you. Yeah, um, um, And she talked about how overwhelming it can be when you're thinking about attending to each individual student's culture. Right. And that the nuances of culture are so unique and so you know important. And and I remember us talking about um, with our book club at the time, um, like how difficult that would be. To like to look at your students across the room and realize, like, oh my goodness, these are very vastly different like you know Mm. cultures and how do I how do I attend to all of that in the moment and so uh, Zaretta Hammond in the book suggested instead thinking about cultural archetypes and she started to talk about like these these grounding principles these roots that um, cultural values and cultural ways of knowing and being that could help us really attend to um, spaces that allow for individual students to have that rich variability within it um, and leaving that good space for it. So it made me think of that with the nine dimensions of UDL guidelines for learner variability here, that this widespread variability is there for our students. Like we know that to be true. That's the that's the beauty and genius of it all and the brilliance of it all. Um, but when you go to plan for it, it's you don't have to plan perhaps as minutely as the 13 little pieces you put on your jagged profile, but you can look for those uh, for lack of a better word, archetypes, you know, like what are those things that go across and they're talking about them here as those nine dimensions of learn availability there in the, the UDL guidelines.
1: Uh, excellent point, Audrey. I, 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 I. it's just such a powerful, powerful aspect of that book. And and I, it resonates a lot with me. And I just, I think that's a great place to start um, because I know that, um, yeah, like you were saying, thinking about all those different um, aspects for every single student at once seems like it would be insurmountable. So, yeah. uh, great suggestion. Uh, well, Audrey, as we move further into the chapter, there's a section on goals. <laughs> you know, right mm-hmm. when I saw that section, I was thinking of our listeners, and I was thinking like that. They're like, uh, "Thank you," but we've 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 got we've a lot this. from you about goals. <laughs> 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 you know, we've talked a lot about goals in this season, season yep. twelve. And I said to myself, do our listeners want to hear more? <laughs> um, uh, and in this uh, section on goals, Audrey, there's there's a, a interesting fifth grade geography uh, example. And um, as I was reading it, you know, I'm going down through that, you know, it starts with uh, the goal that the teacher had started with, the original goal they had. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking like, I'm not sure that that's, that's a goal. And I'm going down through here. And then sure enough, by the end of the the, the example in the table, uh, the teacher team decides to shift and focus on a different goal. And it was like, oh good. Because like I was thinking that, you know, the original goal was not really a learning goal. And I so I thought that was kind of cool how you sort of like can see that there was a, a shift in in their thinking about that. Um and th- the example, it's really clear how like the the, the original goal had to do about creating something with a cereal box like that. That was the thing that the kids were going to do. And a key understanding for me around goals is really around this very point that to me is made in this table is what are our intentions around a specific learning rather than what kids are going to do? And I think the equivalent in mathematics is when I. Plan math lessons, Uh, one of the things that I share with educators all the time, um, and you know the phrase that's coming, (laughs) is I say to myself, what do I want students to walk out the door knowing about mathematics that they did not walk in the door with? Because when I give myself that frame, um, it can't be about just something that they just do during the lesson. It has to be something that they learn, that they walk out the door with, that they learn about mathematics. And uh, that connection was clear to me as I read through this lesson and they, they shifted their goal to, to be something more around something around learning rather than the kids just doing something in, in the project. So I thought, it was, I thought the table was good in terms of uh, triggering that type of thinking because I, I think that's really, really a, a game changer in the way that we plan instruction.
0: Yeah. I really I really appreciate that Mark. I think um I think that that process is not something we spend enough time on. So the fact that they have a whole table about how you kind of work through rethinking your goal was huge for me. Um I've had the opportunity to work with several groups of teachers in the last month um and getting into the weeds of lesson planning and sometimes it's in the weeds of lesson planning that you are you get really tangled up in it and you realize you need to go back and rewrite the goal um, that the goal itself is the problem, right? Um, because it gets really messy and you're like, I don't, I don't know if it's this example or that task or this, and you have to go back and say, well, what is it in your words that we're trying to get kids to walk out the door with? Like, what is it that we're trying to, um, really accomplish here in this, in this lesson or in this lesson series? And, and so I really appreciate, I appreciate that the authors put this in here, Mm -hmm. but I think like you said, um, that it's almost hidden. So there's a couple tables in a row. And I wish, um, a shout out to the authors, great example. But if you were going to go back and rewrite one thing or change one thing, Mm. I would highlight that section of the table where the teachers come and say, oh, we recognize that these were not, (laughs) it was not a good idea and we changed the goal. Like that's huge. The moment of rethinking is a huge space. And and I, I would highlight that because I think a lot of times as teachers, we feel like, We already said the goal was going to be this. I'm already three steps down planning the lesson. And even though it seems like it's not a great goal, I'm going to just, I got to keep planning the lesson, right? And as opposed to saying like, hold on a second, let's go back. let's attend to that in a different way. So super interesting, super interesting section for me.
1: Yeah, Audrey, I think that's a really, really good point you just made. Um, You know, the the goal starts around, you know, the students, uh, you know, making this, let's see, yeah, making the cereal, cereal box, right? Yeah. Create a cereal box. And then at the end, they they pull it back out and say, it's about learning about research skills. Yes. And so once you've changed it to research skills, you're opening many avenues for students to, to reach that goal. And to your point, that is an absolutely huge, huge point. But to be honest with you, Audrey, I didn't notice that even until I read the chart the second time around. And so- mm-hmm. um, I, I agree with you. It's almost like that should be a whole like a whole section to highlight in in the chapter. So yeah. yeah. Great, great yeah. point. Um well as we move for further into the chapter, Audrey, there's a, a next section that's called prioritize engagement, mm. which um caught my attention and yeah. dove right into that as I was reading through the chapter. There was something that gave me a little bit of pause as I was uh going through that chapter and it sort of I have to just I'll just be uh, uh, honest with you and our listeners. Uh, uh, when I got to the section on uh, observation protocol, um, I got, uh, <laughs> I had a little bit of a trigger. I'm just going to, I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there um, because uh, I just have seen in the past with universal design for learning that sometimes we just go super fast, slippery slope, right down to a checklist. And, um, and, and there's this, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's like every observation protocol, Mark. I don't know oh. if that's just this, oh. but like, okay. right? Yeah, like, I feel like yeah, every right. observation protocol kind of boils itself down to at the most simplistic level, like, did you or did you not do these two things, right? And it's like, that's not the intention. The intention is how do you get a lens for looking at things in a classroom? So I appreciate, I appreciate your pause. I think it's a good one. It's a good one.
1: Yeah. I mean, because like, here's what I'm thinking, Audrey. Let's go specifically with universal design for learning. Mm-hmm. If I just start wandering through classrooms with with this, this bullet list, right? Um, like my teachers may not even have intentions around particular bullets. And so like, what would be our purpose in classroom observations with UDL in mind to ensure something like that's purposeful and impactful for students? So for example, the question, what are some of the threats or distractions in a lesson? It kind of, I just, I don't know. It seems like a little bit of a judgment call of the observer,
0: Mm. unless
1: that's a focus the teacher has identified and wants feedback around Yeah. um, versus a blanket observation of looking for all of those questions. And so, like, I realize that some of this probably has to do with whether you're using more of like a targeted feedback type of a philosophy. And that, again, to your point, that could have to do with any kind of observations we do where we... Are we supporting teachers by supporting them on things that they've identified that they're they're working on? Or are we just sort of wandering through classrooms and um, looking, looking for things that are not UDL that should be UDL when somebody hasn't even sort of started down that road? Um, so those are some things that I'm thinking about.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that, Mark. You know, um, I think... I think one of the spaces they went with this, which I appreciated, was that they switched over. And by the time they got to table like 6.6, 6, they talked mm-hmm. about looking for expert learning. Right. And if I had to make a choice between an observation protocol for UDL and looking for expert learning, mm-hmm. I think I would choose expert looking for expert learning. And the reason I think the reason I'm doing that is because everything in this expert learning category is about looking for what students um how students are engaged mm-hmm. like when mm-hmm. i think about like what students are doing in mathematics how are they doing that how are students showing this how are students making decisions how are students recognizing how are students knowing how are students expressing right all of these questions are attending to students and what they're doing and i think that's the right space to be looking at and then we can like you said look backwards and have conversations with teachers about how did that happen was that accidental or was that intentional and where did that come from um so super curious about that did were there any bullets um in that section that stood out to you or anything about that that you resonated with you specifically yeah. for mathematics yeah
1: of course audrey thanks for asking I, I i agree with everything you said i when i got to this table i just felt like it was just more much more applicable and sort of like practical in terms of getting into a classroom with so yeah like i as i was looking at table 6.6 I added this idea of mathematics at the end of a couple of these bullets. And, and, and I think it's kind of cool. So like, um, you know, when, when would, one uh, of the bullets uh, under engagement, okay, under the engagement principle, it says receive and incorporate feedback on their progress. So then I'm thinking about like that idea of um, in mathematics, like how would I might think about doing that to make sure that I'm building that student authority in mathematics, but yet still being able to give certain. I was thinking of Peter Lilydall with the idea of hints and things like that. So, like, there might be a certain type of feedback that I'm focused on to increase engagement, but I'm going to still build that mathematical authority. So, that really resonated with me. Going to the next section on representation, I was thinking of that second bullet recognize when they are lacking background and can figure out how to gain it in mathematics. So, students, when they're problem solving, thinking about like, What is the information that they can go and find so that can help them solve the problem? And Audrey, finally, in the action and expression uh, section, I was looking at the first bullet, choose, choose methods that best enable them to demonstrate or show their questions or understanding in mathematics. So I just added in mathematics at the end of that, like the others, and I could really see students choosing a strategy that makes sense to them and that makes sense for the mathematics that they're about to engage in, and the context of the math get, mathematics, and then making some decisions around that. So um, I re- to your point, I really thought that this table around expert learning uh, could be a table of expert learning in mathematics. And maybe as for those of us teaching mathematics, we could really see how this could be relevant for us.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it makes me think, you mentioned Peter Liljedahl's work, it makes me think of that chapter nine around Um, flow with hints and extensions and there's some diagrams in there that talk about just how messy the the work is right like you're trying to stay away from boredom and um and on one side and too challenging on the other side and there's there's constant like navigating between like the hints and extensions Um, and some of the things you just mentioned make me think think about how messy it is to get students to attend to um really expert learning right like to navigate the messiness there so i appreciate that
1: yeah yeah for sure well, Audrey, our authors, um, as we go further into the chapter, they really get into this this sort of the when and the how to roll out the actual mm-hmm. UDL guidelines mm-hmm. as a support for teachers. Um, and um, one of the things they mention on page eighty is in the and, and I'm I'm I admit that I'm just pulling out like kind of a phrase out of there. Um, but uh, you and I have, have really grappled a lot with this idea of when to. Uh, introduce the UDL guidelines. And there's a phrase on page 80 that mentions to just keep referencing the UDL guidelines, to come back to them over and over. And I, I can see I can see where the authors are coming from on that. Um, but one of the things that has been an aha for me, and a, it's just, just my point of view on this, is that I believe the UDL guidelines are introduced too early many times, mm. uh, before um, educators get a sense to understand variability, Understand barriers and opportunities, and um, I just think that if the barrier, the excuse me, the guidelines themselves are given too early, before they are that that just right tool for me to use, it kind of kind of puts the cart before the hurt the horse. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm not anticipating barriers in my students because I haven't bought into that part yet. I'm not like down the road on variability yet. And so now I'm getting this, this sort of almost like, it's almost like I'm getting the answer key before I'm getting the problem to solve. Um, so uh, I'm just thinking that, that, you know, introduction of the guidelines should be that just right resource when I get to the point that I need ideas around addressing variability. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's that's yeah. kind of what I'm thinking about. And I think that it, it is something you have to revisit over. So I do agree with the authors on that. We do, it's something we, we're going to, as we go further in our learning and we see the guidelines each time, we will understand more about them. I just think that UDL sort of gets pushed to this side more because people get the guidelines too soon. And they think that that's, that's, it's just a bunch of bullets that I'm supposed to, oh, and I already do that. And kind of those responses, Audrey, what do what you think? Yeah, thinking?
0: yeah I, I think that's a really interesting take on it, Mark. I think I think when I, you know, when I think about cognitive bias or unconscious bias, you know, I know that to some extent, our brains, when they're overwhelmed with information, put push them away into different categories mm-hmm. very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine um, a lot of people looking at those charts the first time, being completely overwhelmed by all of the things that's in there and becoming desensitized to it almost as you're talking about um, at this point of like, and then every time I see it from then on, I see those same blue, purple, green boxes and it goes into that scene. I've seen it before space in my brain. Um, I already know how to interact with this. I already know that it was useful, unuseful, whatever box it fit, fits in and it, it goes into that category versus an authentic interaction with it. Right. So, you know, I think the authors have left it to the last chapter of, of the text. And I think, I think that's an interesting that's space it's to interesting. have that conversation too. Like they did not start the unlearning journey with let's all pull out our guidelines yeah, and yeah, have a look true. at them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's something to be said for when you have the headache and you have the need for it, getting the aspirin as Dan Meyer uses in his analogy. Um, right. Like what, when I get to the space where I say, I don't know how to plan for all this variability in my class, then I head to the get guidelines. And I look for those dimensions of variability and I think through how do I use those checkpoints to make sense of the opportunities I can offer my students in light of their variability, in light of the needs of the context. So um, I think there's a different space for that versus if I just shower people with the guideline, purple, green, blue papers at the beginning of a conversation around UDL. I think it goes into that space of our brain filed in for use for use for some other time.
1: For sure, Audrey. And, uh, you know, as we get close to the end of this chapter, you know, uh, we've got uh, kind of the big question that I appreciate our authors really bringing home here at the end, which is like, what's the tipping point for UDL, right? Like, mm-hmm. what's the tipping point across the the scope of education and, and our learners with UDL? Um, I, I have a feeling you've been thinking about that.
0: Well, you know what, it feels like the million dollar question, doesn't it, Mark? Like, I, I remember several years ago, we were at a conference, we were speaking about UDL and we started by asking, why is UDL not a widespread practice? Right. And there was just silence in the room. Like people don't, people don't, are they're grappling with it. You know, like we know it's powerful in practice. We know it's research and, and yet it's not happening in most of our classrooms most of the time.
1: Yeah, for sure, Audrey. And, um, I I've just I've noticed a few things uh, since we've had that uh that conference and and in our conversations together and conversations with other educators there just seems to be some things that are that are still barriers in UDL becoming uh, ad- adopted as an approach to equity specifically in mathematics um so I'll I'll share a few Audrey um one is that it remains really theoretical for educators I I've noticed that a lot of times when UDL is introduced, it's not introduced in a particular content area in the context of a content area. It's sort of like sort of generic uh, when introduced, and I think I think that can definitely be a barrier because people don't see like what that would look and sound like in a particular content area. Um, I think it's also still viewed as something that's implemented in special education settings Mm -hmm. and and not something that is helpful for all of our students. Um, And I don't think people make the connection that it's a tool for equity uh, to ensure success for each and every student. And finally, I would say that many of the UDL examples within books and articles that you and I have uh, investigated, um, attempt to UDL a traditional model of teacher lectures and students copy the teacher as that sort of thing that we're UDLing, (laughs) if you will, Mm -hmm. versus dismantling that practice completely and putting the learner at the center of the meaning making of the mathematics. So I think we have some pedagogical um, barriers as well that have prevented UDL from really becoming uh, a tool for equity as it really could be in mathematics.
0: I appreciate that, Mark. You know, I'm a I'm a Malcolm Gladwell fan, especially of the book Tipping Point, and I appreciate the authors bringing out, you know, like, where is this tipping point? Um, but you've brought up some really important points that are very different than about getting the right people like a salesperson a maven and a connector Mm -hmm. and that that's really what the problem is um and and i think if we really thought through kind of the four pieces that you brought up and we thought through what are the barriers in each of those instances and how do we think about them differently we might really start to transform our systems um to recentering udl as a transformative practice for our students
1: right well um how about we share a couple of final thoughts about the book, Audrey? Because uh, here we are. We're just know, uh, wrapping, wrapping up the up. book. I know, yeah. an- another book wrapped up. So, um, well, you know, here's what I'd like to say, Audrey, is I have really appreciated the introduction to the idea of unlearning. I had not thought about it quite that way before. I think the premise of the book is fantastic in that way. Um, I'm really sold on that. Um, and I appreciated how the authors rolled that out at the start of the book. Um, I The one thing I'm still thinking about is, how people decide what to put in place of their unlearning. So like, I'm going to unlearn something. I'm going to pick something in my practice that I know needs to go. um, But then what's going to be put in place of that? In other words, yes, let's get rid of that antiquated practice. But, oh no, here it comes. I see you replacing that with another practice that is ineffective or actually could even do harm to students. So like, what lens are we using to bring in the next practice to replace something that we're unlearning?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really important thing we do. I think we have to continue to be that reflective practitioner that interrogates those those decisions. Um, you know, one thing that's sticking with me was brought up in this chapter, and I think it's the most common thing I get asked about, is like, what's the difference between differentiated instruction and UDL? Oh, yeah. And I thought their their discussion of it in this chapter um, was was really thoughtful. Um, and one of the things that I think is re- that I keep centering myself around when we have those conversations um, they mentioned on page 73 and I'm, I'm holding it with me again as we finish this book is that we are trying to shift the mindset that we are not fixing the students, the students not broken to we are working on fixing the curriculum, that the curriculum is the part that's broken and needs work, that the things that we bring to the table for instructing our students is the thing that we can work on. Um, they have a lovely comparison table on page 74 about what's the difference between the two. Um, and if you get asked questions about the two of them, as often as I do, that might be a space that you can look at and um, share with folks. I know I'll be leaning on that table a lot in future conversations. Uh, so a lovely read. And thanks for the discussion on this book with me, Marka. It's been a good one.
1: Oh, for sure, Audrey. It has definitely been a good one. Well, thanks for joining us for this season. And this season of Summit of It All podcast. We'll be back soon with a new season. Until then, what will you unlearn?